This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 14 of the Ned Ryan podcast. So I want to talk about some of the coronavirus situation where we are right now in August of 2020. Uh, obviously, I, and I've, I've said this before, I think, on this podcast, but if I haven't, I'll say it again. I am fully convinced that somehow, miraculously, on November 4th, or whenever we finally decide who the President of the United States is, please God, let it be Trump, uh, coronavirus will magically disappear because it will no longer be an effective political tool. I will say this, though. You know, I, I've joked that it's November 4th will miraculously be healed or it will re- recede into the distance, uh, distant uh, background if we actually know who the president will be on November 4th. And I've put this on people's plates that we should be prepared for an election not to be decided for potentially six weeks. Kind of a replay of 2000 in Florida on steroids. So I just mentioned that so that you all uh, can be thinking about that as well. That all to say, uh, here we are uh, dealing with it. It's being used as effective political weapon by the left. And, And I have to tell you too, the other thing that you guys should be thinking about when you look at the overall numbers, again, which I don't believe, I think a lot of these numbers for whatever reasons, and I've mentioned this on Twitter, we have incentivized fraud. We, If you look at the payments that go out to people that have coronavirus, pneumonia with coronavirus, it, there's more of a payment through uh, Medicare. If you have pneumonia, coronavirus, and are on a ventilator, there's that much more money. I mean, there's a lot of medical incentives, quite frankly. And I think one of the things to be looking at in the fallout from all of this a year or two from now are a lot of investigations into the fraud that I truly believe was perpetrated uh, by some of the uh, health providers in this country. But the other point, if you believe the overall numbers, and again, I don't, I think that they've been padded. I think that uh, people, again, we have to debate with versus from somebody that had a serious medical condition that had coronavirus, but died from the medical condition being counted as somebody that died from it. I mean, that's a huge debate. So you start to talk about that, but also look at, you know, if there were five Democratic governors from blue states, Cuomo, Wolf, Whitmer, um, some of these others, uh, Minnesota, pulling a blank on the governor's name in Minnesota. If you were to take those five Democratic governors and look what they did in sending coronavirus infected people into uh, patients, into rest homes and assisted living, which have caused about 43, 44 percent of the entire death total if you believe the overall numbers, and I'm saying this as an exercise just to think this through, you remove 43 to 44% of the overall deaths from the generally accepted number that I don't believe, you reduce that number to the point of basically a bad flu season. And yet we have literally crushed our economy. Tens of thousands of small businesses will never come back. We put at one point, uh, was it 41 million Americans out of a job all over something that was basically a bad flu. So... I was right and continue to be right. Let's look, though, at how China, again, I'm, I'm kind of on that China theme, having dealt with Beijing Biden in the last episode, but how China has dealt with its response to coronavirus. Completely botched, intentionally so. Uh, when the coronavirus first surfaced, again, it was either late November, early December. I think it might have even been in October. Uh, the Chinese officials silenced doctors who tried to go public with this information about the disease. Um, They scrubbed references to the virus off the internet. They did not inform the World Health Organization about the existence of the virus until December 31st and then continued to lie about it, Um, saying that the virus, based off their interaction with it on the ground in China, 
could not be transmitted through human-to-human contact. Uh, they delayed that, uh, they, so they, they pushed that for several weeks. And then on January 14th, uh, the World Health Organization claimed preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission. A- at some point, I would hope that common sense rational thought would become the standard in which people will dismiss on its face anything coming from the Communist Chinese Party, uh, the ruling regime in China, who are not going to tell the truth if it hurts their interests. Um, For us to take anything at face value coming out of Communist China is to our own detriment and and dangerous. It, It would be dangerously naive to accept anything coming out of the Chinese Communist Party as truth. So on January 22nd, World Health Organization confirmed that there was indeed actually evidence of human-to-human transmission. And at that point, the international spread of the coronavirus was made possible by the fact that as many as 5 million Chinese residents left Wuhan before the lockdown was implemented. Think about that. Because China lied, delayed, first of all, delayed that it existed till December 31st, months then said human-to-human transmission didn't exist. You add weeks more to it until the third week of January. And at that point, as China is locking down Wuhan, 5 million residents of Wuhan, the epicenter of coronavirus, have already left the city. So the American people are kind of waking up to what China has done. Its favorability, China's favorability among the American people has collapsed in recent months. Uh, In April of 2020, the Pew Research Center Uh, illustrated this trend. 66% of Americans uh, in April of 2020 viewed China unfavorably, which was up from 60% in 2019. Only 26% of Americans viewed China favorably, unchanged from the previous year. As recently as 2017, only 47% of the American people viewed China unfavorably, while 44% had a positive view of the country. So, Think about 2017, first year of the Trump administration. Trump has been leading the charge and highlighting, thank God, all the problems that we have with China, their ambitions, what they are hoping to do, intellectual property theft, et cetera, et cetera. The unfavorability has, over the last couple of years, three years, jumped 20 points in how the American people view China. In the wake of coronavirus, I think that trend continues. So remember, China is trying to replace, that's, this is their goal, their stated goal over the next 100 years to replace the United States as the epicenter of the world economy. 91% of the American people in this Pew Research poll currently said that it would be better for the world as a whole if the U.S. is the leading power. Of course, 83%, um, America is the world's leading military power. Uh, 59% say that it's a good thing that the U.S. is the world's leading economic power. of the American people have no confidence in the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. And 62% of Americans say that China's power and influence pose a major threat. So think about it. Six out of 10 Americans right now with a fake news, many of whom are compromised by Chinese influence. Fact, that's true. Despite all of this and the American people not really receiving the full truth about China, six out of 10 Americans say that China's power and influence pose a major threat to the American people. So, 
the reason that we, we need, and again, Trump has highlighted this, that we need to be aware of that China is coming for us, economic strength, right? 2019 estimate from the International Monetary Fund found that the nominal GDP of the United States is, again, it's still the highest in the world, uh, $21 trillion and 439 billion da, 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 of all the nations uh, of the European Union. So if you look at the United States, obviously 21 trillion, look at all the nations combined as the European Union, that's 18 trillion, and China's was only 14 trillion. But still, China, China is coming, right? So the question is, does China have the ability to overtake us? I don't believe their GDP numbers. I had a conversation with somebody that's been in has a lot of experience in monetary. And he said their claims of, what was it, six, six and a half GDP is ridiculous. It's below 2% in reality if you were to do it the same way as the U.S. So that all to say, though, you have a country of a billion people and a third largest economy, if you were to include the European Union as a country, a lot of economic strength. So if you, um, but then if you dig down a little bit deeper, and this is where I think Trump has realized we're kind of at a nexus point, right? Where China is attempting to surpass us. They've got a lot of potential. At the same time, there are a lot of weaknesses as well. That if trade deals change, if we crack down on intellectual property theft and uh, forced technology transfers, all of these things, which are accelerating China's overall plans to overtake us, by the way. I think that's probably clear, but just to reiterate that, International Monetary Fund found that the nominal GDP per capita in the U.S. was the seventh highest in the world in 2019 at just over $65,000. China's, on the other hand, was 65th with a mere 10,000, well below the global average of $11,355. So, there, there are weaknesses when you start to dig below the surface. There's a massive debt bomb. I don't know if I'll get to that in this podcast, but China is sitting on a massive debt bomb that who knows when it'll go off, what, what will finally trigger an internal collapse of a system that I think is being propped up by the Chinese Communist Party. So this all to say that if trends are allowed to continue. If Trump didn't show up, if Trump did not highlight the problems, if Trump did not take a very aggressive approach on trade policy, if we have decided that we are going to fight tooth and nail with China to decide who controls the technology of the future, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of experts predict, have predicted, and again, predictions don't always come true, but they have predicted that China would have a larger economy than the United States by 2030. So that's why this is a really critical time in world history. Do you have the largest free market capitalist, you know, entrepreneurial nation with the freest amount given to its people of, you know, freedom to pursue their ideas and and freedom to live their lives versus a barbaric communist regime? That's the great struggle. And right now, if trends had been left unchecked, had continued on their, you know, trajectory before Trump, China would likely have exceeded uh, the U.S. economy by 2030, 10 years from now. So there's some other things, too, to look at, again, that, that are causing people in D.C. to really be illuminated on, on China. And again, it's one of those things where Trump has really been able to change the conversation in D.C., and I say that as somebody that's been here 20 years. 
again, the consensus for, for many years, both Republican and Democrat, oh, we'll bring China into the WTO, we'll bring them into the WHO, they'll want to democratize, come into and have many global trading partners, and we'll all sing Kumbaya, right? Well, that has all changed with the arrival of Trump, and now people are realizing, oh my gosh, this is a very serious problem. And you realize where all this influence peddling has gone with China, that a lot of people have been compromised in our higher education system and our media. I mean, th- these are some really serious problems. So the other problem that people are looking at is realizing U.S. versus China military strength. Um, overall, uh, according to Global Firepower 2020 rankings, United States still ranks first in the world in overall military strength. Russia's number two, China's number three. Okay. We spend about $750 billion in defense every year, which is the most in the world, which that's a whole other topic I'd love to discuss at some point. My dad was on armed services for years, pretty much his whole 10-year, 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 that's a mouthful, in Congress was on armed services. It's something that I think we need to take a hard look at. I am all for a strong national defense and being... Um, carrying a big stick and, and walking quietly, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, there's a lot of waste. I'm telling there's a lot of waste that takes place inside the military industrial complex that we should take a hard look at. That all to say, we spend $750 billion a year in defense. China spends $237 billion, which is the second most. Total aircraft strength in the United States is 13,264 airplanes. China's total aircraft strength is 3,210. China, uh, United States has 6,289 tanks. China only has 3,500. Total armored vehicle strength, United States, 39,000. China's at 33. Um, our naval fleet strength is 490, which is only the fourth largest in the world. And China has um, the second highest total naval fleet at 777. And in a shocking statistic, North Korea... According to this, Global Firepower Rankings has the largest fleet at 984. So where some of the military capability gets really interesting is you look at the numbers of those that are fit for military service in the countries. China has 621 million people that are fit for military service, while in the United States we only have 119 million. Again, we are, what, a third or fourth of the size of China. So this, this obviously makes sense. They're a much bigger country. They've got a lot more people that are fit for military service. A massive potential um, physical army. So, while China's, you know, sort of give it a little more clarity too, while China's defense spending is much lower than the US, about a third, roughly, of the United States, it's accelerating it at a rapid rate. Um, let's see, 2017, the United States spent $600 billion on defense, and China spent about $220 billion. Um, at the time, again, we've Trump has accelerated some of our defense spending. Probably, obviously, he's looking at these numbers that I'm looking at, plus others, obviously, with a lot more intel. Ergo, $750 billion. Um, China's defense budget at the time in 2017 was three times larger than that of Russia's and four times larger than that of Japan's. The, China's spending on its military has quintupled between 2000 and 2017. And, and always go back to that date of 2000. Again, this is where trade, formalized trade relations with China. There's been and a lot of our manufacturing jobs left, et cetera, et cetera. 2000 is a very 
pivotal point. I mean, there's a couple pivotal points along the way with our relations with China. Formalizing trade relations with China in 2000, that's one of the things. It's another pivot point that did not work in our favor, by the way. Unlike the United States, China concentrates its military power close to home. And the personnel costs for China are much lower than that of the United States. So domestic security. I mean, this is something else that I think people need to be aware of in regards to um, China's police state, right? I mean, their social scores, their constant surveillance of its citizens, obviously talked about their cultural genocide, actual outright genocide against the Uyghurs, domestic security. So they're spending a lot, under President Xi, they're spending a lot on domestic security, and it's becoming very noticeable. Obviously, it it showcases the regime's primary concern over internal threats as opposed to external threats. And so while the growth rate of the budgets for both external and internal security have outpaced economic growth in recent years, domestic spending... Domestic security spending has outpaced national defense budget for the Chinese by approximately 20%. So they're spending hundreds of billions on external uh, defense and spending 20% more than that on domestic security. Um, In fact, domestic security for China amounted to over 6% of its government spending uh, and... um, by, so basically, uh, in 2017, just to give it you a little perspective, in 2017, they spent $196 billion on domestic security and less that year than on building out the military. So again, their domestic security, as I've mentioned before, they've, they've spent it disproportionately using to monitor and control regions such as Xinjiang, again, I probably butchered that name, and Tibet which are located on the outskirts of the nation and which are dominated, again, by ethnic and religious minorities. In Xinjiang, the government has woven a web of surveillance with checkpoints, high-definition cameras, facial scanners, and street patrols. Region spent $9.1 billion on domestic security in 2017, which was a 92% increase from 2016, according to the local government data. Domestic security spending increased by 12% in 2017, and then it increased by another 17% in 2016. So what is this being used for? China is using its domestic security budget for regular and paramilitary police, courts, prosecutors, and prisons. Chinese authorities are experimenting with cutting-edge tracking tools, tapping social media accounts to punish politically incorrect speech, and in some places, trying to get residents to inform on each other using smartphone apps. In fact, I mean, quick story to show you how bad it's become. They literally um, now have social scores. They are monitoring you so much. They have the ability to tap into your bank accounts. If you're caught jaywalking and you're monitored, you're just given a ticket and the money is automatically withdrawn uh, from the account. Obviously, it goes against your credit score. I mean, there's crazy stuff that's going on. And this is some of the stuff that when we talk about US versus China, is that what you really want for the future? Because if they gain control of the 5G networks and are able to dominate that infrastructure, what does the future look like in regards to privacy, in regards to, again, free flow of information, all these things? And there's a lot at stake here that uh, thankfully Trump is highlighting. So 
South Chi, uh, South China Sea photos um, has obviously highlighted a recent military spending spree for China. They've spent so if you haven't followed the South China Sea, they've spent years building military outposts, you know, creating islands in the South China Sea. Uh, again, on a group of contested islands, a project that has the country at odds with many of its neighbors in the United States. I mean, there's the dredging. Again, the ships were were uh, basically pumping sediment into underdeveloped, undeveloped reefs. They're creating f- these fake islands. Then there came the buildings, again, which they claimed initially, again, don't trust what the Chinese have to say. They said, oh, no, it's just for civilian purposes, but it's actually their small military installations. Um, now some of the islands are part of the group known as the uh, Spratlys, S-P-R-A-T-L-Y-S, where China began large-scale development in 2013, and they've basically transformed them into uh, these barren reefs in a course of seven years into military outposts. Um, obviously, the Philippines, Vietnam, Taiwan, Malaysia, they stake claim to part of the South China Sea. And it's called, I mean, this is one of the big issues, you know, who controls the South China Sea? And China has decided they're going to start building these islands and turning them into military installations to stamp their control over the South China Sea. So you're probably thinking, okay, besides wanting to stamp their control over the South China Sea, why is China doing this? Well, South China Sea is one of the most important energy trade routes in the world. Almost a third of all the global crude oil and about half of the global liquefied natural gas, LNG, passes through the South China Sea every year. So think about it. The communist Chinese are trying to stamp their control over one of the most important energy trade routes in the entire world. third of the global crude, half the natural gas. And they have been, over the last seven years, building these, bar- these military installations, taking sediment, putting them on reefs, creating you know, these, these series of islands to basically control one of the most important trade routes in the world. Okay, So that's why South China Sea is such an important issue. So what are some of the other issues with China? You know, I, I hope that you've been following some of the Hong Kong protests. Really what it comes down to is the protests in Hong Kong started back in June of 2019, just over a year ago, over an extradition bill uh, introduced by the Chinese government. And again, they've continued on, and the bill allowed for criminal suspects to be extradited from Hong Kong to the Chinese mainland, which critics said, and Hong Kong said, we don't think so, because it would undermine judicial independence and endanger dissidents. Again, cracking down on free speech, free assembly, all of these things. And they also said, you, this bill will also be misconstrued to target activists and journalists. So the extradition bill was first introduced April of 2019, then it was withdrawn in September of 2019 in the wake of, remember those massive riots last year? They withdrew it for a period of time which it was a major victory for the protesters. And they expanded on their demands. They said five demands, not one less. You know, they they wanted, uh, you can't classify mass demonstrations as riots, amnesty for arrested protesters, independent inquiry into police brutality, implementation of complete universal suffrage, and the withdrawal of the extradition bill, which had already happened. So, Hundreds of thousands of people, again, are protesting in Hong Kong, 
And again, it, it played over here a little bit. A lot of people were following, especially in the D.C. area. Wish more had followed it because it really was a, a f- issue of freedom. So again, they withdrew the bill in September. And then on October 1st, which was the 70th anniversary of the Communist Chinese uh, Communist Party rule in China, Hong Kong was then subjected to the most violent and chaotic uh, stretch of days. 18-year-old was shot uh, with a live bullet in the chest as protesters were fighting officers. Uh, government responded by banning protesters from wearing face masks. Again, the facial recognition that they've ruled out. Pro-Beijing lawmaker was stabbed by a fake supporter in early November. Another defining incident of these protests was a standoff between the police and students who were barricaded on Hong Kong's Polytechnic University's campus. Later in the month, pro-democracy forces swept 17 out of the 18 council seats in the Hong Kong elections. So what Xi Jinping said is, if you continue down this path, any attempt to divide China would result in bodies smashed and bones ground to powder. So remember, Hong Kong was ruled uh, by Great Britain until 1997. It was returned to China. Hong Kong supposedly operates on the principle of one country, two systems. And although Hong Kong has some individual freedoms, again, its own judiciary, its own legal systems, as well as freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, these freedoms have increasingly been infringed upon in recent times. And China, China is intent on bringing Hong Kong to heel. Um, the basic law, which has governed Hong Kong, uh, legally protects these rights that I just mentioned. It expires in 2047. Uh, freedom and autonomy in Hong Kong are not going to be protected in the long term. If China continues down this path, Bill, this the basic law expires 27 years from now. Um, it will just be subsumed. I mean, that's the, that's the goal. They're trying to subsume Hong Kong into uh, mainland China. There will not, not be an autonomous um, Hong Kong in our lifetime if we're not careful. So think about some of the other things, too, uh, that, that China has done to highlight how antagonistic they are. Uh, the OPM hack. I don't know if you guys remember this. This is from about five years ago. Off, Office of uh, Personnel Management in the U.S. government. 22 million people inside and outside of government had their personal information stolen by Chinese hackers. Again, the PLA has an army of 100,000 hackers that every day are trying to hack and steal uh, Military information, energy information, this private information of of U.S. citizens. At the time of the initial hack, OPM, Office of Personnel Management, only admitted that 4.2 million current and former federal employees were impacted, which wasn't true. It was over 20 million. So investigators ultimately determined that 19.7 million applicants for security clearances had their social security numbers and other personal information stolen And 1.8 million relatives and other associates also had information taken. That includes the 3.6 million of the current and former government officials, uh, employees, for a total of 22.1 million. All of their information, including social security numbers, stolen by Chinese hackers, who again are part of the Communist Chinese Army, People's Liberation Army. U.S. intel and law enforcement officials are particularly concerned about the theft of forms known as the SF-86 that current and prospective federal workers, including certain military personnel and even contractors, submit for security clearances. 
So these forms require applicants to provide personal information not only about themselves, but also relatives, friends, associates, and foreign contacts spanning back several years. The form also asks applicants about drug use, financial history, mental health history, and personal relationships. So lots of very valuable personal information stolen five years ago by Chinese hackers. So then go to 2017. Four Chinese hackers allegedly took down Equifax, right? They stole names, birth dates, social security numbers, other personal information, millions of people. Uh, in fact, in fact, it was estimated that 143 million U.S. citizens had been compromised on some level, and then they realized that number wasn't actually the correct one. It was more about 148 million people had had their personal information compromised by Chinese hackers. So an FTC complaint from last summer found that the company uh, stored administrative credentials in an unsecured file in plain text, kept 145 million social security numbers and other consumer data in plain text as well, rather than encrypting them. It failed to segment the databases, et cetera, et cetera. Um, All that to say Equifax didn't just let the alleged Chinese hackers into the vault. It left the key on the table outside the vault in plain sight because they didn't encrypt the the information, left it in plain text. So U.S. Department of Justice has issued nine counts in this case early this year with four of them being members of the Chinese, of China's People's Liberation Army. Again, part of that army of 100,000 hackers. So... These guys, I, I, I'm hoping that you're starting to see the trend here. They are extremely antagonistic. They have a plan. They have a goal. They want to control the trade routes for energy. They're trying to steal intellectual uh, property, have forced tra- technology transfers to accelerate their chance to replace the United States as the epicenter of the world economy. Awful consequences for the world if a barbaric communist regime becomes the epicenter for the world economy. So a little bit more on the coronavirus too, really quick before I end up. I mean, we have now accused, the U.S. has now accused China of hacking coronavirus research, undermining vaccine developments. We, the, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has now warned American organizations researching the effects of the virus against likely targeting and network compromise by the People's Republic of China. According to a statement from the agencies, any institution that believes it may have been subject to a cyber attack should contact local FBI field offices to protect these critical response efforts. Again, these efforts by the Chinese and hacking and the cyber attacks are designed to boost China's efforts in developing a vaccine of their own, um, not, not only undermining our efforts, but also to accelerate their efforts to create a vaccine. This all to say, this is, again, I will reiterate this. U.S.-China is one of the biggest issues in 2020 and what the future of the world looks like. And if we allow us to have a snapback with Beijing Biden to the what used to be the status quo in, in D.C., that somehow we were going to be friends with China, with the barbaric communist regime. We could trust them. We were going to be trading allies. It was beneficial to both of us. Nope. Their plan all along has been to steal 
and to lie and to cheat and by force to replace us, not be a partner, to replace us and in turn take the United States and turn it into a tributary state of the Chinese Communist Party. That's what's at stake this year. In November of 2020, one of the most important issues at stake. And I hope that people listen to this and equip themselves and educate themselves on how important an issue this is.